All right, we are continuing our study this morning through the book of Acts. We've completed chapter 1, and in our last study, which was actually three or four weeks ago, uh, we just cracked open Acts chapter 2. And we only covered verse 1, and we took a look at, in some detail, the background of what verse 1 describes. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And what we did was we went back and looked in the Old Testament at the origins of the day of Pentecost, what it was all about, how it is one of the seven great uh, feast days that the Lord appointed in the law of Moses, how each one of those feasts point forward to the work of Christ in some distinctly significant way, and that this particular feast, while known at this time as day of Pentecost, was originally known as either the Feast of Weeks, which marked out on the spiritual calendar a specific relationship to an earlier event which pointed to the crucifixion of Christ and then it was also known of course as the feast of harvest it was one of the three great harvest feasts but this being the most significant of the three in terms of the harvest theme and that pointing to what's going to actually happen later in this chapter on this day when the beginning of the great harvest that we know as the salvation of new believers in the new covenant is going to come about. And so um, we have completed our preparation in a sense for the actual events of the day. And now we'll look at for our focus today just the next two verses. And we're going to focus on just the beginnings of the events of that day. So let me read from Acts 2, 1 through 3. When the day of Pentecost arrived, They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. All right, how many of you before this reading that I've just shared with you, how many of you have read this portion of scripture before how many of you have thought about it before all right so i'm not going to be breaking any new ground for anyone this morning this is a familiar portion of scripture it's a famous portion of scripture what we're going to do though is we're going to look at at a at a more um, detailed level at the events as they unfolded because the way that the lord set up this experience and the experience really really gets rolling in verse four and we're going to save that lord willing for our next study but in verses two and three there's there are some details that are part of how the lord wanted them that first experienced it to understand what was happening to them and then by extension and this is an important thing that really goes back to our study in chapter one uh, i'll just i'll read this you don't have to turn back to it uh back in chapter one in starting in verse uh Four, it says, while staying with them, this is uh, in folk, the, the one in focus is the Lord Jesus. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, speaking to his disciples, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus had ordered his disciples 
Don't leave the city of Jerusalem yet. Yes, I've given you a great commission. Yes, your assignment is to eventually go into all the world and to carry the message of salvation to all the nations. But don't go yet because you're not ready yet. There's some preparatory experience that's essential to your ability to fulfill your part in that great assignment, that great, what we call great commission. And so they were staying in the city of Jerusalem They were waiting for the fulfillment of the promise that the Lord had given to them. And they were, of course, during that 10-day period, praying in their their waiting posture. But now, here in chapter 2, the event is happening. The promise is being fulfilled. They are being, or about to be, baptized with the Holy Spirit, as the Lord had described back in chapter 1. When we were in chapter 1, we camped in those couple of verses for a few weeks, and we did so in order to demonstrate that in spite of all of the differing ideas and perspectives and opinions that are out there in the wider body of Christ as to what this phrase, baptism with the Holy Spirit, means, what it actually is pointing to is a true new birth salvation experience that every true believer has. And so the event that's happening to them is simply they're the first ones in all of church history to have this experience. But it translates to us in the sense that if we have been born again, this experience they're having on this day is an experience that we ourselves have had. And so our study of this event is a study in order to help us understand with greater clarity with with greater fullness exactly what has happened to us what why has the lord changed us in the way that he has and what's the significance of what he's done and so we're going to we're going to look through verses 2 and 3 this morning from that perspective and though it's well familiar territory to everybody I want to take us through it by asking a set of questions connected to the text. And the questions I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask eight questions this morning, and we're going to try to answer those eight questions in the time that we have. If you want to plan ahead, I'm just going to read all eight questions, and then we'll go back and and try to answer them uh, in turn. The questions are, why did it happen suddenly? Number two, why the emphasis is on it happened from heaven? Three, why a wind? Four, why a sound like a wind? Number five, why a mighty rushing wind? Number six, why did it fill the entire house where they were sitting? And then number seven, why is it described as tongues of fire? And then number eight, why a divided fire resting on each one of them. All right, so the first question is connected to the very first description of their, their, what we would call their experience in that day, that moment, and that's in verse two. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. My question is, why did the Lord do this suddenly? Is there any significance to the, to the suddenness of his actions? And I think like in all of these accounts that we have of the Lord's work and interaction with his people, there's a, there's a reason behind what he does. The Lord doesn't do anything just by happenstance. 
only thinking later on, oh, you know, I guess this, this served a good purpose. I just hadn't planned that out in advance. The Lord plans everything he does out in advance and he does everything that he does very purposefully. So why did he do it suddenly? Uh, there are things that the Lord does in this world. There are aspects of the Lord's work in this world and a significant work that the Lord does that he does gradually rather than suddenly. The Lord doesn't always work suddenly. There are, there are many ways in which he works in a very slow, progressive, gradual way. For instance, uh, right from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, when he, when he created what we know as the plant kingdom, he made everything according to its seed, and it continues to function and reproduce in this world in that exact same way. Um, not everyone does this, but how many of you have ever planted a garden? A, it doesn't have, matter how big or how small. So when you plant a garden, you, ha- you have to have some essential elements. You have to have soil. You have to have water. And you could have the best soil and you could have the best water. But unless you plant a seed, you will never actually have a garden. You will just have dirt. And it'll, it'll be wet dirt, but, you know, it, that's all you'll, you'll have is mud. So with soil, with water, you plant a seed, and then as soon as you plant that seed, five minutes later, you come back and you have the full harvest, right? There's always the full harvest five minutes after you plant it. The, the idea of planting seeds is you know going in, if you've had any experience with planting, that I'm going to need some patience here, and I'm going to need some constant attention over an extended period of time and if I will apply those principles in the right way continue to water it when it needs to be watered weed it when it needs to be weeded protect it from things that will come in and try to eat it before it reaches full maturity eventually I will have a harvest and that seed grows slowly 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 but certainly it grows and it eventually produces a harvest The Lord's work is often like that. In fact, in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, in the the section in chapter 13, which contains those seven great kingdom parables, and I don't expect you to remember each one of them. In fact, let's turn over and just read the shortest of those kingdom parables. This is Matthew 13. And this parable was found just in a single verse. All seven of these parables, though, are rightly identified as kingdom parables because they're revealing a different aspect of the Lord's work in the establishment of his kingdom in this world. And in verse 33, we have the kingdom, uh, the kingdom parable of the leaven. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour and then While it's not detailed in this word, it's implied in this word. The word till, till it was all leavened, you could have in the translation until it was all leavened, uh, implies what? It implies a slow, gradual, and somewhat hidden process. If you've done any baking, you know you put leaven in flour, and you do what with that? You, You let it what they call rest. You wait for the leaven to work its way through the whole lump of dough that you're making. It doesn't happen instantly. It doesn't happen automatically. It happens slowly, certainly, but gradually. So 
with all of that background about how God does work in gradual ways and some, in a kingdom context, very important ways, going back to Acts 2, verse 2, I just find it significant that it doesn't read this way. And gradually there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. In this case, the Lord works suddenly. Why would he do it suddenly as opposed in this case to gradually? Uh, well, suddenly, you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like watching a movie and you're, you're in a scene in the movie, You've, you know, you're identifying with what's going on in the movie and suddenly something happens that you didn't expect. Suddenly something happens that completely changes the story. There's some big twist, there's some new development and now you're drawn into the story at an even deeper level in an even greater way because of the suddenness of the change that happens. It is a dramatic thing. It's an intense thing. And in this case, I think it indicates in a clear and decisive way the Lord's involvement in the circumstances that are about to unfold here in a way that he could have accomplished this in a gradual way, but it wouldn't have been as obvious. It wouldn't have been as noticeable. It wouldn't have been as instantly recognizable if he had done this gradually rather than suddenly. So the Lord intervenes. Now they had some expectation. We know that all the way back to chapter one, the Lord had told them, wait for the fulfillment of the promise. And for 10 days, they had been interceding and seeking the Lord in the upper room, but they didn't know exactly when it would happen. The Lord had not told them it will coincide with the events of the day of Pentecost. We see the connection between the fulfillment of what happens this day and that Old Testament feast. But they weren't certain about it at the moment it was happening. And suddenly the Lord moves in to the room and he does so with specific kind of phenomenon happening in their sensory awareness. One of them is audible, one of them is visible. So we see in verse two, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So this is leading us to our second question. What's the second detail that's mentioned? The wind, the sound of the wind at least that they heard came from heaven. Now, this room is right at this moment fairly quiet. If there were suddenly the sound of a strong wind, would we automatically conclude that sound just came from heaven. No, for a couple of reasons. One, this is Northridge, right? And it's a really windy place. And so if there was a wind that was suddenly blowing in the vicinity, we could hear it. You can, you know, you can hear when it's the windy time of the year and the Santa Ana winds are blowing. You can hear the sound of the wind and some days, not every day, but some days, it's a particularly strong, I don't know if it would quite reach the, the level of what's described here as mighty rushing wind, but it's pretty strong when it blows hard. But none of us would automatically conclude, and I certainly don't every year when the Santa Ana's blow, I don't think to myself, that's a wind blowing from heaven. I, I, 
tend to think that's a, you know, aptly named, you know, that's a devil wind. Because, because that wind, you know, is usually raising all kinds of problems with my allergies. So why, the reason I'm, I'm going down this avenue is why would they think that this was a sound from heaven? Why would they conclude? Because we don't know how it is that they knew this. We're not given details and background information in the text here, in the, in the way that they experienced it in the moment that it happened. Maybe, maybe only later as they got together and discussed it, did they come to the fullness of corporate recognition that this truly was a sound from heaven. I don't know exactly how they drew that, that conclusion, but it was a spiritual discernment. I think one of the hints, though, is in where were they when this was happening? They were inside. They were not outside. Now later, the events of this day, as they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in other languages, they're going to spill out into the streets as a, a gathered community from the city of Jerusalem comes to find out what's happening because apparently the phenomenon was noticeable to people in the surrounding area. So people are going to gather. They're going to leave the upper room. They're going to interact with those people. And Peter is going to use the, the circumstances and opportunity to begin preaching the gospel. But it doesn't start out in the streets. It starts in, an, in a room of a house. It's a large room, as we've, as we've seen before, an upper room that was capable of holding 120 people in it. But it would be like if, if this, this building was all closed up and we suddenly experienced the sound of a mighty rushing wind, but it wasn't outside, but it was right here inside. And you could tell and discern that it was right here inside. Well, I will tell you this, if that happened to us this morning, I would have a better clue as to where that wind was coming from. Because it's not even physically possible for a wind like what's described here to happen inside of a house unless there's some supernatural element connected to that wind. And certainly, as uh, the story unfolds, it becomes very obvious this is not a natural wind. This is not just a, a, a weather phenomenon. This is, this is the work of the Lord. This is, this is in some unexpected and sudden way, the presence of the Lord in the midst of those that were praying and wanting himself to be revealed in relationship to a natural phenomenon that we know as wind. So it's a wind that they discern is from heaven, which simply emphasizes that what's about to unfold the rest of this chapter is entirely the Lord's work. This is heaven's work. This is heaven interrupting the normal circumstances of daily unfolding life in this world and interrupting it in a sudden and dramatic and powerful and noticeable way. That's the third detail is Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. All right, so the Lord clearly wanted a natural phenomenon to be associated in their perspective to the spiritual experience they were having. But out of all the natural phenomenon he could have chosen from, he chose wind. My question is, why wind? Why did he choose the imagery and the natural experience of wind 
to associate with this event that we know to be the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Well, let's start by going way back to the beginning of God's book. Let's go back to Genesis and chapter 1. This is not a new imagery associated with the Spirit of God. It's the very first image that the Lord associated with the presence, the activity, and the work of his Spirit. From the very beginning of his revelation to his people in the book of Genesis, the Lord wanted, when his people thought of his presence as the Spirit of God working and moving in this world that he had created, he wanted them to associate the work of his Spirit with the natural experience of wind. We'll read from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The deep here is simply what we would call the oceans covering the earth. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What we have in verse two is a clear and strong imagery of an association of the spirit of God in his work his activity, his movement in this world to change things in this world according to his kingdom purposes with the natural phenomenon of wind. Now, it's not as obvious on the surface of our text because we're reading an English translation, and this is true not just of the ESV that we study from, but all the English translations, but I want to draw it out. The word in verse 2 that's translated Spirit with a capital S, and the translators have done the right job in capitalizing because even though there are no capitals in the original text, they help us to distinguish between ordinary spirits, and there are such things as ordinary spirits. You have one and I have one, but the Spirit of God is no ordinary spirit, and so they capitalize it to distinguish that for us. And that word, translated spirit, is the Hebrew word ruach. And that word can be translated by one of two words. They chose the word spirit here, and that's appropriate. There's nothing wrong with translating it as spirit. But it's not what the word literally means. The word literally means either breath or wind. And throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures, whenever you see the word spirit, you are reading a Hebrew word translated, which means, according to the context, either breath or wind. And so if we were to read it literally, this is how we would read it. And the breath or wind of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we have a strong hint just in the name that the Lord chooses to associate with the Holy Spirit. He is the breath of God and or he is the wind of God. But also in the brief, it's a very brief description of his activity. His activity here is he is in some sense 
geographically, so to speak, over the surface of the waters that were covering planet Earth at that time, at that point in the process of creation. And what is he doing over the waters here in verse 2? What is he doing? Is he just hanging out? He's, in our translation, he's hovering over the face of the waters, which, um, I don't know, pick your own imagery, maybe like a helicopter hovers over the waters or like a, a bird hovers over the waters. And the word hovering is, again, not a bad translation, but even more literally than that, the, the, the description is he was moving over the face of the waters. And so you have an image right from the beginning of the story of creation that the Spirit of God, who is the breath of God and the wind of God, is moving over the face of the waters. And of course, his movement over the face of the waters leads directly to, we certainly don't, this isn't the point of our study this morning, but from verse three through the rest of the chapter, you have a detailed description of all of the unfolding works of God's creation as he is now transforming the world that he has made. In, in, in verses one and two, you have, a, you have a world ready to be transformed. He's already made the world, but now he's, he's getting involved in the details of the, the activities of the six days of creation that are going to follow. Each one of those coming directly out of, so to speak, the moving of the spirit of God over the face of the waters. Now, why and what connection could that possibly have to the day of Pentecost? The question we're meant to ask, I think, is, as the Spirit of God is moving over the face of the waters, is it a gentle summer breeze kind of moving? Or is it a strong, a powerful, like a mighty, rushing moving? And we have our own discernment to make. You have your own choice to make because that detail isn't given to us. But I think when we're talking about the creation of an entire world, this is not just a gentle movement. This is a powerful, mighty movement of the wind of God upon the surface of the waters, leading to what was then a new creation result in the world that God was transforming. And on the day of Pentecost, the sound of a mighty rushing wind leads immediately to the 120, (coughs) excuse me, who are like, in a sense, a seed of all that God will eventually redeem and transform in this world. But those 120 are the beginnings of a new creation work that God is doing, that's unfolding as he is moving upon their hearts and upon their lives. Now, in the New Testament, the word, and we're heading back to Acts 2 now, The word in Acts 2, we're going to skip down one verse beyond what I read already. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So we know that this wind is now intentionally associated with the Holy Spirit, identified with the presence, the power, and the activity of the Holy Spirit. And the word spirit is, of course, a translation in our text, not of a Hebrew word, which we saw in Genesis 1, but of a Greek word, because you all know 
The Old Testament scriptures were translated from Hebrew. New Testament scriptures are translated from Greek. So the Greek word for spirit, is it different? Is it distinct from the Hebrew concept? It's a different word, of course, which is the Greek word pneuma. But the Greek word pneuma has two literal meanings, just like the Hebrew word ruach had two literal meanings. And those two meanings for the Greek word are breath and or wind. And so we could have translated, the translators have done a fine job in verse four, but they could have translated if they were looking to make a more literal translation and they were all filled with the holy breath or they were all filled with the holy wind and began to speak in other tongues as the breath or wind gave them utterance. And so the Lord intentionally in both words that he's chosen inspiring those in the old covenant, starting with Moses, those in the new covenant here, Luke is writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, choosing specific words from the language in order to associate the presence of his spirit with the activity of either breath and or wind. By the way, what's the connection between breath and wind? The idea here is that God is the one in this moment because it's his presence in the room. He is breathing out, and as he breathes out, he breathes out so powerfully that it's experienced by those who are in the room as a mighty rushing wind. Next question. Why not so much a wind but a sound or the sound like a mighty rushing wind with an emphasis on the word sound. The, the text, as it briefly describes to us, doesn't tell us that a wind actually blew in the room at all. What it tells us is they experienced the presence of what we can only rightly describe as not a natural wind. In other words, they didn't feel it on the skin of their forearms or on their face. They heard it in their ears. And so there was no natural wind that blew in the room. Nevertheless, they heard with their ears the sound, an audible phenomenon of it's like a wind is blowing in this room, even though I can't feel the wind blowing in this room. So why the perceived experience of the sound of a blowing wind? And I think this one should be fairly easy and straightforward for us because of the description the Lord Jesus had given to them sometime before. Uh, Look with me, if you would, back in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And we're going to catch a detail from his interaction with Nicodemus late one night as Nicodemus came to him, and this is the famous interaction about you must be born again. Well, I'm going to read starting in verse 1 of chapter 3 just so that we can get some of the, the context of this conversation. <clears throat> now, excuse me. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher come from God, and the we here is we the Pharisees know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So apparently there had been some conversation among the the Pharisees where there was an acknowledgement in private 
among the Pharisees that this man, Jesus, truly has been sent from God because he's doing miracles that no one could do unless God has sent them. But they were not willing to publicly acknowledge him. They had, the rest of them had their own political motivations for that, for that refusal to acknowledge him. But Nicodemus was in a different place. He was in what we would call an honest-hearted seeker of the truth. And he wanted to know whether Jesus really was or whether he wasn't. So he's come to have this conversation with him. And Jesus responds to him in verse 3 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is confused by the response of the Lord Jesus. And he says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, and both of those images go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, meaning natural birth that he was already familiar with. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. This is now referring to a new, additional, and, 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 and essentially spiritual experience of a second or new birth, which Nicodemus had not experienced and was not familiar with, And that's what was somewhat confusing him. Jesus says to him, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then we have this interesting additional explanation added in verse eight that was intended to clarify for Nicodemus, but probably at that point, he didn't fully get it. Later, we know that Nicodemus became a true disciple of the Lord Jesus. And I'm sure looking back on this night's conversation, And I can only imagine that Nicodemus probably reviewed this conversation thousands of times in the future as he thought back on this night. But probably later, verse 8 began to dawn on him in terms of what Jesus really meant. This is an explanation of the Spirit's mysterious work in the heart of the person who is born again. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And then this detail. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So why, when we get and head back to Acts 2, why, when we get to Acts 2, verse 2, do we see this detail emphasized? Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Jesus had... had taught Nicodemus, and they were aware of that teaching, that when the Spirit comes to transform in a saving new covenant fullness kind of salvation, when, a, when the Spirit of God comes to transform the heart of a man, it's like the wind blowing, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't see it, because it's, it's invisible, The wind is only visible if you see stuff being blown by the wind. Like yesterday, it was a windy afternoon and I was, my office looks out on my backyard and I've already described to you, my backyard is kind of dusty and the wind picked up and I saw this like little whirlwind in my backyard. Was I seeing the wind? No, I was seeing the dust being blown by the wind. You can only tell by the stuff that's affected by the wind 
that the wind is actually active and at work. And the point that the Lord Jesus is making to Nicodemus and the point that's unfolding here in chapter two is you're going to be able to tell when the wind has transformed the heart of a person by how they're affected by that wind blowing upon them in that, excuse me, saving and transforming way. So not a literal wind in the sense of a physical natural phenomenon, but a spiritual wind that could only be perceived by the changed lives, the transformed lives that that wind has affected. All right, the next detail. Why is it described here as a mighty rushing wind? And And again, I'll just contrast this with the possibility that the Holy Spirit could have come that day into the room like a gentle breeze, but he didn't. Why mighty rushing wind? Keep your place again in Acts. Let's head back to another. Almost all of these are, are, I believe, references to old covenant images. Head back to the book of Job. Old covenant images that give us previews so that we could make the links, so that we could connect the dots, so to speak, to recognize the specificity of the Lord's activity and work in this circumstance. So we're in the book of Job. This is the the grand finale, really. This is where the book of Job changes, chapter 38. Uh, The first couple of chapters, you know the story. I won't take us through an exposition of Job today, but in the first couple of chapters, the, 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 the great testing events happen to Job. His life, as he knows it, falls apart. Uh, there are significant events that happen where he loses his, he loses his health, he loses his family. Uh, you know, his life is devastated. And then from chapter 3 through to chapter 37, he has good friends that come and join him in his suffering. And they sit with him and they offer him counsel. And most of their counsel is well-intentioned, but off base, missing the point of what is actually happening to Job. And then right at the end, in the last couple of chapters, there's a new friend, a young friend that enters that group, and he brings a fresh perspective, a new perspective, a spiritual perspective, and he offers counsel that really represents the heart and mind of the Lord. And then as soon as that young friend who represents the heart and mind of the Lord, finishes what he has to offer to Job by way of encouragement and perspective. Chapter 38, a new character enters the story. This one happens to be the most important character in the book, more important than Job himself, because this is the Lord entering the story. Verse one of Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, and he goes on to really bring a a significant correction to Job's perspective and a rebuke to the perspective of the friends that had offered well-intentioned but off-base counsel to him. The Lord spoke to Job and he intended to speak to Job. He entered Job's life experience at this moment and begins to speak to him in a way that Job can hear, perceive, and understand that this is the Lord speaking to him. But the Lord dramatically, and when I say dramatically, I don't mean dramatic in an empty sense, just for show. 
but dramatically in a sense to get his attention in a very specific kind of way and then us reading it get our attention in the same kind of way. The Lord answers Job and speaks to him in, in and out of a specific kind of circumstance. He speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. Now what is a whirlwind? Like a tornado. <coughs> the, the size excuse me for my voice the size of the tornado uh, isn't specified here but if it's the Lord speaking out of a tornado it's probably not like that little dirt devil that was spinning in my yard yesterday afternoon it's probably something bigger it's probably something stronger it's probably something really really attention getting because it's the Lord revealing himself in power what kind of power? Wind power. Why? Because from the very beginning of his book, he reveals that when he's about to do a new work, a new thing, a new creation, when he's about to enter a life and change it and transform it, he blows on that life in a way that's so powerful that it cannot ultimately be resisted. There are some winds, even strong winds. Like we've had winds blowing in Chatsworth where I live at, at, on rare occasions up to like 70 miles an hour. And I've gone outside just to experience it. And you know, you can stand in a 70 mile an hour wind, but if you stand casually, what's gonna happen? You might get blown over and you might, you might be hurt. But if you kind of set your feet and you kind of lean into the wind and you intend to keep your ground, you can stand in a 70 mile an hour wind. What happens if the wind is a 200 mile an hour wind? You can, you can lean into it. You can set your feet. You can intend to stand your ground, but you're not going to stand your ground. You know, uh, hurricanes, they, they talk about gale force winds, hurricane force winds, and they use the word force on purpose to describe this is a wind that you don't mess with. This is a wind that you don't play around with. This is a wind that will change your life, generally speaking in a natural circumstance, change your life for the worse. People don't go out and, if they have any sense about them, they don't go out in hurricane force winds or tornado force winds just to ride the winds for fun. Like there have been a couple of tornado uh, movies where you see a cow flying through the air you know and the cow's not doing it you know as a joyride so if the lord spoke to job out of the whirlwind what's he signifying i'm coming into your life with great overwhelming irresistible power and i'm about to change something in your life that's the signification so in Acts chapter 2 when the Lord enters the room in a mighty rushing wind kind of way what is he signifying to the 120 that are gathered here and you don't have to turn to this but let me just let me read this one other reference I meant to read earlier let me get to it this is from Nahum everybody's favorite Old Testament book this is Nahum 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way 
is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And so when he appears in the upper room, in the person of the Holy Spirit, he signifies that by giving them the experience, not of actual wind, but of the sound, so they could associate it in their heart and mind. If they have any understanding of these Old Testament references, if they have any awareness of the meaning of these symbolic connections that the Lord is drawing, they would anticipate the Lord is about to do something big, and he's about to do it in us. Because this wind, this sound of this wind, was not blowing in the entire city of Jerusalem that day. It was blowing in one room, and it was affecting those 120. Now, it would soon, before the end of the day, it would also, in the same exact kind of way, transform and powerfully rush upon 3,000 souls who were going to get saved that day. But at this present moment, only the 120 are experiencing it. Okay, next question. We're back in Acts 2. And we're in verse three, uh, excuse me, verse two still. There was a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it, that's the sound, connected to the presence, the power and the activity of the Holy Spirit, it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Why is that detail added? Okay, so it's pretty quiet in here right now. Okay, hold on. I made a sound. Did that sound fill the house? Yes and no. Yes and no. Meaning everybody in every part of this room heard that sound. So in that sense, the, the sound reverberated off of all the walls and everybody, it entered everybody's ears and everybody heard it. But it didn't really fill the house. Now if we took a microphone and I kept doing that, and I put the microphone right up to where I was striking the wood, and then we turned the speakers way up to full power, you know, power 11 in a, a, 10, uh, a 10 slot, you know, power dial, then, then we could say it, it would fill the entire house. And I think that's what is being indicated here, that this was a sound that was not just a, a low-level sound of a wind. This is, this is one of those kind of winds that it literally is is I don't know if we, I don't want to say it because that would be reading in the text something that's not there I don't want to say it, it was hurting their ears but if you've ever been close to a really 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 powerful wind and I haven't been in a hurricane I haven't been in a tornado but I've seen videos that had audio of people that were really right next to it and you just hear this deafening sound and the people that experience it later describe it as it was a deafening sound. It just completely dominated their awareness. But why the entire house? I'm gonna take you to two passages of scripture in the Old Testament. First is Exodus chapter 40. Exodus 40. This is a key moment in the Exodus journey of the children of Israel from Egypt to the promised land. And you know they journeyed for 40 years in the wilderness. 
But one of the most important things that took place during that wilderness journey is that Moses was called up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he received from the Lord the revelation of the Ten Commandments, but he received a second revelation from the Lord while he was on the mountain, and that was the blueprint and the instructions for the construction of a special house, a movable house, a tent house that was going to be identified as the Lord's own house. And just like all of the children of Israel lived in tents in all of their journey through the wilderness, the Lord was going to symbolically live in a tent. His tent was going to be larger than theirs, and his tent was going to be at the center, the heart of all of their surrounding tents to show that the Lord should be at the center and heart of their lives. But nevertheless, that's what's going on. And here in chapter 40, we have the tail end of a several chapter long description of the construction of this tent. We're going to jump into the middle of this here, or really at the end of this, starting in verse 33. Exodus 40, 33. And it's speaking here about Moses because the Lord had given the instructions to Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. And then these key words. So Moses finished the work. What work? The work of the construction of the house of the Lord. Then, verse 34, then, and I think we're meant to read then and only then. Meaning there's a spiritual sequence of events that are taking place here. And verse 34 couldn't happen until verse 33 took place. So Moses finished the work. Then the Lord covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What does it mean the Lord covered the tent of meeting? It means that that pillar of cloud and fire that had led them out of Egypt and was leading them through the wilderness and did lead them to the foot of Mount Sinai and would continue to lead them through all of their 40 years journey through the wilderness, that pillar of fire and cloud, which temporarily had been only on the summit of Mount Sinai and Moses entered into it to receive the revelation of these things, when Moses finished the work, that pillar of fire and cloud lifted from the summit of Mount Sinai and settled directly on top of the tabernacle of the Lord in the wilderness. And when it settled on the tabernacle, it, in a sense, invaded the tabernacle and filled the entire tabernacle. In fact, so much so, as it describes in verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Okay, let's jump over now and look at a second parallel passage in the book of Second Chronicles. What could possibly be parallel in Chronicles to this important Exodus event? Well, for all the succeeding years between Exodus and Second Chronicles, and we're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 5, in all the intervening years... 
the tabernacle of the Lord was the exclusive house of the Lord. But now in chapter 5, a new house of the Lord is replacing the old house of the Lord. The Lord is moving into a new house. When you move into a new house, you move out of the old one and you leave it behind, you abandon it, and you, you embrace and identify yourself with the new one. Let's read chapter 5 of Second Chronicles. I'm going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to jump down to verses 13 and 14. Thus, all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. Why Solomon? Because Solomon was functioning in relationship with this new house in the same way that Moses functioned in relationship with the old house. The new house is the stone temple in Jerusalem. The old house was the the movable tent structure um, that Moses had constructed. Thus, all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. Skipping down to verse 13 now. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. Now, is this some random uh, meteorological event? No, this is the reappearance of the wilderness cloud. They had not seen it for generations between arrival in the promised land and now the construction of the temple, but the Lord was still revealing himself in a cloud, and now as he's moving into a new house, he actually reveals the cloud to them once again, but now the cloud is in relationship with the temple and settling upon it. So, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. All right, these, both of these are revealing to us a pattern of the Lord's work in this world. The pattern is this. The Lord has a specific work that he is working to accomplish in history. What is that work? It can be described more than one way, but in this imagery, it's described in one single way. The Lord's work in history is building a house for himself to live in. That's what history is all about. He is building a house for himself to live in. And so he had Moses representing himself, representing the Lord, construct a tent. Why a tent? Because they were a people on the move and the house of the Lord had to be on the move. When they finally arrived in Jerusalem and they had reached their their end destination, the goal of their journey, the Lord replaced the movable tent structure with a permanent stone structure. But in both cases, the Lord did not move in to his house until the work was finished. And so the work was finished by Moses and the next thing we see is the Lord fills the house with the cloud of his presence. Then Solomon finishes the work and the Lord moves into the house and fills it with his presence. What's going on in Acts chapter two? The same thing played out according to the same pattern, but now a third house is in view. There are three houses of the Lord. Really four, technically speaking, but ultimately three houses. And I'm not trying to confuse you with some kind of new math when I say three or four. Um, The first house of the Lord is the tabernacle. The second house of the Lord is the temple. 
The third house of the Lord is the Lord Jesus himself as the fullness of the spirit of God in his baptism descended and remained upon him. But he is the cornerstone of the third house. And so by extension, we call it, we can call it the fourth house, which then becomes the church, which are his people. And that work of filling his house, moving into his house, cannot happen until something precedes it. In, in the days of Moses, Moses had to finish the work. In the days of Solomon, Solomon had to finish the work. So in the days of the book of Acts, what is the significa- signification of the finishing of the work that precedes the moving in? Jesus, of course, on the cross spoke these words. It is finished. He accomplished the work. And having accomplished the work, now the Lord is in Acts chapter 2, moving into his house. But it says he filled the, the, the sound of the, the wind filled the entire house. Why emphasis on the word entire? Because there is none of the 120 that are left out of this experience. It's one of the great tragedies of the modern, what is called Pentecostal slash charismatic movement. The idea that, and we, we address this in great detail back in chapter one, but the idea that there are somehow two categories of Christians. They're the spirit-filled Christians and the non-spirit-filled Christians. I'll just say it once more for, for extra emphasis. There is no such thing as a non-spirit-filled Christian. If you're non-spirit-filled, you're not a Christian. And if you are a Christian, you are filled with the spirit of God because it filled the sound of the entire house where they were sitting. The, the, the pillar of cloud filled and it, cloud and fire filled the entire tabernacle in the days of Moses. In the days of Solomon, the pillar of cloud and fire filled the entire temple. No part left out, no single element missing from that experience. Now, uh, Tim, if you want to get ready, uh, I'm going to quickly cover these last two. Actually, you know what? For the sake of our time, I'm going to save these last two questions, which are why tongues of fire and why divided fire resting on each one. And I'll link that to the events of chapter 2, verse 4, heading back. Let's just head one last time back to Acts 2. Because I don't want to give this last detail short attention. I'll read again from verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. We've answered each one of the questions connected to those details. What's ahead of us is, and divided tongues. Why were these described as tongues? And why were they divided? And why were they of fire appearing to them and resting on each one of them? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we'll save that for our next study. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your work in this world, in your people. And I want to thank you for the grace that you have shown us that we are part of that work. I pray our study today, as we've looked at some of the details of your work on this special day, the first day of Pentecost, the day that you first filled your church with your spirit and your power and your presence, I pray that it would bring new understanding, 
new light and new encouragement to our hearts as well so that we can walk in the fullness of what they walked in in that day. Thank you for your work in our lives as well. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Let's. Uh,